Well, welcome everybody this morning. Uh, before we get to our session for this morning, and I introduce Aaron, I just want to give a couple of instructions for this morning, especially as you think about the breakouts. And it's just important to sort of prepare your minds and hearts to make that time particularly helpful and useful. So when you came in, you should have got a card. There was a card in the back. If you didn't, go grab one. I want you to have that during this session to write down a question, uh, jot down a comment or something that can help facilitate the discussion because the breakout time is a time for you to be able to get to some of these areas, to talk about some of these things. And the reason we've done this with the, with the cards is that we can allow you some space and some freedom to ask questions and you can keep it completely anonymous and then we'll be able to go over those together. So everyone should have a card and everyone should turn in a card. Even if you don't write something on the card, turn the card back in. And then we just, everyone has a card, everyone turns it in and we'll make sure that we get it from everybody. There's two bags in the back, one for men, one for women, because when we break out, we're going to break out into men and women. So when you are done here at the end of this, at the end of this session, on your way out, drop your comment cards off in the bags or right by this middle back door and just leave that there. And you can uh, add, add a question, feel free if there's a comment. And if you, I mean, just use that to communicate with us um, with some uh, safety of anonymity. Um, the questions, think about, now we talked about the, the connectedness assessment and the, the theme of the breakout sessions is intimacy. And this is an area that's hard often for couples to talk about. But we're talking about the, the intimacy as a whole. So we're not just talking about physical, but we're talking about, and Aaron's going to discuss some of that stuff tonight. So think about questions along those realms, but you also have the freedom to ask uh, some general questions about marriage or maybe something came up and, hey, I, I'm struggling with this. And, and friends, I want to encourage you to, to think about this as it can bless your brothers and sisters. It can bless them. You may be asking a question that they're not comfortable asking. And it's often in these situations, who, you know, we say, who else can relate to that? And others can relate to it. So if there's a question on your heart, ask. And this is a space to do it. And we are going to talk a little bit in, in the breakouts. We'll just remind you about confidentiality and safety. We're looking to create that safe space um, in, in a church for us to share and be able to share some of these things. Uh, so that's what I want to share. Just make sure you jot something down, put it, put it in the bags on the way out, and then... Um, we'll discuss those things in the breakout groups and think about the breakout groups are, are meant to be interactive and a chance for you to kind of interact uh, together as a group uh, facilitated by, uh, by, by the leaders. So that's, that's the goal for it. So I'm, I'm excited and very grateful to introduce uh, my dear friend Aaron, who's going to speak to you just as you, some of you who were here last night um, got to uh, hear from him a little bit. And um, he just is a wealth of knowledge. Um, but what I, I most appreciate about him and why I often come into his office is that he brings me back to the heart of the gospel and faithfulness to scripture. And so as he lays out God's plan for marriage to you, I want to pray for him and ask that God would speak uh, through this brother. Father, we do thank you for uh, this opportunity we have. Thank you for... Um, the body of believers gathered together to hear your word, uh, to hear your truth proclaimed, to gather in worship, to understand the uh, perfect way that you have orchestrated uh, marriage to be. And I pray that you give us clarity 
on that plan. Speak through uh, our brother Aaron here as he shares. Might you increase our joy as we hear and our excitement to see um, things change in our own marriage. God, speak through him, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was, am I on? Am I on here? Awesome. I was told I was going to get a let's get ready to rumble introduction, <laughs> but that didn't happen. Um, are we here? Okay, we're good. Um, just throwing down pens. So I wore a sweater because I felt a little underdressed by these curtains. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty nice, pretty nice uh, background you guys got here. Um, I'll throw that one down there too. So our task for today, uh, the goal, uh, what we're going to try to accomplish um, is, is pretty big. And, you know, I enjoyed being here last night, talking, listening to Johnny, um, kind of process through the problem uh, as seen in marriage in our culture today. And as I was leaving <clears throat> last night, I, I got to thinking... So my parents are divorced, and then I got to thinking, like, okay, my dad has three siblings, my mom has three siblings, and all eight of my aunts and uncles are divorced. Like, all of them. I was like, what? I did, I, like, I had never thought about that before. It had never crossed my mind, but it's true. Divorce is, it's crazy rampant, right? And, you know, they were divorced for different reasons, some of them Christian, some of them not. But it's a, it's a crazy statistic in my family that divorce is, it's very prominent. So when I think about you know, marriage and working with couples, this is important. This is important to me. And so I, I kind of jumped in this, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You kind of go into something, you're, you know, you're looking, you're thinking like, oh, I, I kind of know the boundaries. I know the ways in and out. And, and you go in like a pool, thinking it's a pool, and it ends up being an ocean. And that was kind of how I felt about this. Um, you know, the, the goal is to trace the, the theme of marriage from Eden to Eden. So, the, you know, the marriage conference is called Returning to Eden. And we started in Eden, and we're going to return to Eden, and my hope today is to do that. Now, the structure uh, that we're going to use is something called the Salvation Historical Timeline. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but it, it, it goes, it takes God's, a theme in God's word, and, and like sin, or temple, or rest, and traces it along a timeline from beginning to end, from beginning to consummation of all things, and walks through the scripture. And I love uh, talking about this with couples. This is one of my favorite things to do. It's one of the reasons I love doing couples work, is I get to share the story of the gospel um, through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And those are going to be our four points today. We're going to talk about those four points. Um, Subpoints are going to be like 80 of them, but we're going to talk about those four. Um, so I don't have a lot of slides. If you want any of the quotes that I have, just you know, ask me. I will, I will get them to you. Um, it's a big task. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to spend a lot of time at the beginning in Genesis, and then we're going to hit some other, other topics. One thing I'm thankful for um, was that Pastor Sunday did two sermons on Ephesians. And they were wonderful. I don't know. If, I'm assuming everybody here heard them um, on Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. They were, they were excellent, well done, really helpful uh, for me and for my time because it takes a little bit off of my 
you know, off of the plate of, of things that we have to go through. Um, so one of the things that sort of jumped out to me as I was studying this came from a, a man named Ray Ortland. He wrote a book called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. And he says this, it's not as though marriage is just one theme in the Bible. It talked about you know, sin and redemption and rest and stuff. Um, instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible, within which the other themes find their places. And so when, when Pastor Sunday talked about this, he, 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 referenced, he referenced Genesis, he referenced uh, Ezekiel 16, he referenced Revelation. He was kind of talking from that, that point of view and, and getting to kind of what we're, we're talking about today. My, my hope today is a little ambitious. Uh, it's threefold. First, uh, that as we trace this theme across Scripture, we can see how uh, this head helper model, he talked about that um, in his uh, sermons, this head helper model clarifies why marriage is so important. Secondly, along the way, we can see how these passages on marriage expose our deepest struggles and provide a way forward towards faithfulness in Christ in our marriages and in the world. And finally, um, I hope that we'll be encouraged in how God has provided marriage for our enjoyment. So let's, let's begin where the Bible begins. Let's begin in the beginning. And you know, to set this up, we're going we're gonna to read verse 26 um, through 29 in just a second. So what, what God's doing is he's, he's, out of the chaos, he's forming the world. And so in the first three days... God is forming things. He forms the day and the night in day one. In day two, he forms uh, the sea and the sky. In day three, the land and the vegetation. And then in day four, he gives the sun, moon, and stars to fill the day and the night. In day five, the birds and the fish to fill uh, the land and the sea, or the sky and the sea. And then on day six, he gives the animals and, as we see, the pinnacle of all this, mankind. So let's go ahead and read right there. Genesis 1, if you want to open your Bibles, Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Mankind's the pinnacle of his creation, his image bearers. Now, with the other creatures, the difference in sexes are assumed. We don't hear about male and female birds or male and female giraffes and such. We don't see that. But with humans, the distinction of the sexes is celebrated. So in just this section, there's four things that come out of it. Humans are different. We're different than the other animals. Only humans are made in the image and likeness of God. I had a coworker who used to have this little sign in her office, and it said, dogs are people too. Um, so it's awesome, but it's not true. Um, so I should send her this. Um, so humans are different. They're distinct from one another in that they're created male and female. They're both dignified in that both male and female are given rulership over this world that he's created for them. This is not just a male thing. This is a male and female. Both are rulers in this world. And they have a joint destiny. 
Both of them are to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So they're different, they're distinct, they're dignified, and they both have a destiny. So this is for males and females. Now, before we get to the end of you know, this section, which is 1, 1 through 2, 3, we're going to jump in. We're going to kind of double click on that verse 26 and zoom in, which is what Genesis 2 is doing. It's Genesis 2, 4 and following. Um, and it's talking about when God created mankind in his image. So 2, 7 says this. Get there. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So this creation is consistent with the forming and the filling that he does in the first six days of creation. 2.8 says this, Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put man he had formed. Based on the garden's contents, the trees of life, knowledge of good and evil, the water that flows through it uh, to the four corners of the world, this is a special place. And so scholars call this a temple garden. Um, and as you, if you remember uh, from Revelation, uh, the temple, the Lord God and Christ are his temple. So we're looking from this temple garden. It's not just, I think I've always thought of you know, the garden named Eden. It's actually the garden within Eden. Um, and it's a temple garden. It's almost the Holy of Holies. And God places Adam there. He puts him there to enjoy bliss, harmony between him and his future wife and the two of them with God. And what comes next in 2.18 says this, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the first time anything is not good. This is not, it's not good for him to be alone. Man needs to be in community. Mankind needs community. It's something that we experience in the, we see in the Trinity, the love and the unity that, that exists there. And, and God is going to, to give this to Adam. He needs a suitable helper. Now, this word helper, especially when we're thinking through the word, you know, the, the model of head helper, um, kind of gets a, a bad rap. And it, it doesn't mean sidekick. It doesn't mean like, oh, you know, come here, be, you know, daddy's a little helper. It's, it doesn't mean that. It's not intended for that. Um, of the 19 times this word is used in the Old Testament, 16 times it's used of the Lord. God is our helper. So we see something really important here, that God is giving Adam a helper just like he is a helper. And there's this word suitable. Well, in Hebrew, that word means equal and adequate. So if these terms are demeaning to anyone, it's to Adam, right? He can't do it. He needs some help. So, you know, back to the story. God is going to bring Adam, kind of parade these animals in front of him. He's going to name them and, and do what his task is to do to rule over this land. Um, and then he's going to discover that he's a lonely leader. He's not going to find a suitable, uh, a suitable helper for himself. So God lays him down, does some surgery, takes out his rib, closes up his flesh. And we're to picture intimacy and harmony here. Um, if you've ever heard the famous uh, commentary by Matthew Henry, it's, it's very famous. I, I really like it. I don't think it's been approved upon. Matthew Henry writes, The woman is not made out of his head to top him. Not out of his... Oh, missing the page. 
not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. So God forms Eve, giving her also the breath of life, and then God becomes the attendant to the bride. He brings Adam his wife. Now, as you, as you look here, Adam is jacked up, right? So the first thing he does is he, but you know it's good when a guy's busts out in poetry. Like, you know that that's, I missed my slide. You, you know that's amazing. That didn't work. Um, you know it's amazing when, when he starts, you know, spitting out poetry. Um, and in, in one of the, the versions, I'm not sure if y'all's version has it, but the poetry that he says is, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. A better translation is, this at last is bone. He's, he's exclaiming, like, finally, this is amazing. I can't believe it. Um, this is the love he's been waiting for. His poetry indicates intimate connection. He feels at the core of who he is. Adam found satisfaction. He found his wife. Here's a scholar, Bruce Walke, he says, the image of shared flesh illustrates the complete bond of marriage. All that affects one affects the other. To hurt one is to hurt the other. So then, Adam exercises his ordained right, and he, like naming everything else, names his wife, but he names his wife differently than he was named. He was named by the narrator in relationship to the ground, Adam. But he names his wife in relationship to himself, woman. She is woman because she was taken out of man. And this is a wonderful signal um, of the equality and the union um, and the head-helper uh, relationship that they have. So for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a, a summary statement of this whole passage. For this reason, therefore, what's, you know, what's the therefore, therefore, as they, as they say, uh, Commenting on this verse, Ray Ortland says this. Here then is the biblical claim. Marriage did not arise from historical forces. It came down by heavenly grace as a permanent good for mankind. God gave it and God gives it. It was and it is his to define. And he did define it in Genesis 2.24 as one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. This is marriage according to the Bible. Because the whole point of Genesis 2.24 is to define marriage for all time, beyond the Garden of Eden. And let's examine some components of this verse and see kind of what marriage looks like practically. A man will leave his father and mother. Now, as you think about this, in the ancient Near East, a man wouldn't really leave. I mean, it's, it's a society where the, the son would take over the father's business and would probably live in the home with him or next to him next to them. So he wouldn't really leave. It's the woman who leaves her home and comes to be with the man. But what this is saying is man and woman will leave the traditions. They will leave um, the way things are done, who takes care of the kids, how things are done in work. They will leave and come together and they will enter into a relationship and they will together decide how the relationship looks. They will leave their father and mother. Through prayer, processing, and connecting, they will jointly establish a new way of being family. And he'll be united to his wife. The phrase indicates both passion and permanence. There's a stuckness. He will be, they'll be stuck together, is, is what the Hebrew says. 
This is done both through the verbal covenantal promise of marriage as well as the sexual union that, that solidifies it. And the two will become one flesh. And this one flesh union is essential to what a God-ordained marriage looks like. Uh, the primary meaning here is kinship, kind of a brother and a sister, blood relatives. The two will become blood. They will constitute a new family going forward. Practically speaking, uh, the oneness is to be experienced um, has to do with all aspects of life, right? So you have a packet uh, that maybe some of you did. Let's, if we all open that as if we've all done it um, and gone through it, you'll, you'll see six areas that when I talk with couples, um, I want to help them examine this oneness. Being one in these different areas on a scale of, you know, I think we did one to 10 or zero to 10 in this. Um, hey, it's right there. Awesome. So these are six broad areas, the physical, the intellectual, the emotional, the social or recreational, the moral and ethical, and the spiritual. These are areas uh, in marriage that I find people are, are lacking in usually some of these. They don't spend time together. They never talk or they, you know, maybe they ride bikes together, but they, you know, they never ever pray together. They don't attend church together. They're not in the same service. There's so many things um, kind of in this model. And I find it to be really helpful for couples who are struggling with, we're not connecting, what can we do? Well, examine these areas of your life. And, I, you know, that was sort of the homework for last night. It was late and you have kids. You probably went right to bed, uh, which is awesome. But this is the goal for you know, trying to create some sense of, of oneness and closeness. How can we bond together in what areas? We'll take these areas and check these out and, and do this. Now, going back to the husband forsaking his, his father and mother, um, what are they to process through together and work towards uh, in their marriage? These kinds of things. What, is, what does it mean? Where, where are our mor morals and ethics on who we spend time with, how we spend our money, um, how are we going to connect? When are we going to do date night? How many kids are we going to have? Are they going to go to public or private or homeschool? Like these are issues that tend to come up in marriage. And if we can get ahead of that on some of these, it goes way better than if it's just a spur of the moment. Many marriages have been ended over things so simple as where our kids going to go to school. So when they leave their father and mother, they join together. Uh, a great many couples that I've worked with, this is a huge problem. They go home for vacation or go to their family's lake house, and all of a sudden, the child, the, the husband or the wife, turns into a child. They let their parents do everything. Their parents are all of a sudden commanding and demanding and parenting the kids and, and doing all these things, and they've really never left. They let their father or mother influence uh, their life to a great degree. They've never left the home. And it's really damaging uh, for a marriage. And so as you think about your marriage, think about have you actually left your parents? Or are you just doing the same things that they do? Or are you letting them influence? If your parents, are you influencing your kids in a way that is not allowing them to join and create a new family? It's important stuff. We see it all the time. Um, and when a couple can come together and make these decisions together through prayer, 
uh, and time with the Lord, it, it becomes a, a real solid foundation for going, going through marriage. So the final uh, verse here, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Perfect intimacy, nothing separating them from one another, everything laid bare, and all they feel together is safety, connection, intimacy, love. It's wonderful. It's God's gift. This is a summary for the entire creative act. Man and woman together, naked and unashamed. And there's hope here. Right? Even We'll talk about the fall in a second. There's hope that you can have a biblical marriage. It doesn't mean your marriage will by any means be perfect. Certainly not. I mean, mine's perfect, but yours might not be perfect. Um, take notes. Uh, but God's allowed us to remain married. It's a taste of Eden. Looks backwards to what once was and forwards to what, want, to what will be. So what makes Eden Eden? Right? Going back, you know, we, we kind of zoomed in here. Going back, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Verses chapter 2, verse 1. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What makes Eden Eden, right? Is it no clothes, no sin, so no sunburns, right? Are we doing, is that a thing? No bug bites? Uh, sunburns would be great. No sunburns would be great. Uh, pleasure and delight, the lushness of the land, the ability to kind of be free and open with one another. All of these are part of it. But what makes Eden so wonderful is that all these things exist with perfect communion with one another and perfect communion with God. Which is why after creation... God created the Sabbath, a time to arrest and enjoy and appreciate his work. And if you look, there's no statement that, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. There is no, there's no end to this rest. Think through Psalm 95, think through Hebrews, um, think through Matthew 10. God is giving a Sabbath's rest to his people. We have that in Christ. We can live in this rest. It's part of what it means to be married is to live and rest with the Lord. God's designed that man and woman would walk with him in total intimacy and the fruit of those relationships would be multiplication. And I have a slide here in just a second. Boom. Next one. Yes. Uh, summarizing this creation, walking with God, walking with God fully, completely, unashamed, intimacy, total and complete intimacy with one another, and multiplication. Be fruitful and multiply. This is the result of the connection that they have and they feel and they move forward in multiplication. This was their, their charter. This was their, um, their gift from the Lord. Before sin, this is what it looked like. Now, Genesis 3, the fall. Creation, fall. We're, we're second point in. Um, Remember from Genesis 2.17, God gave Adam and Eve everything in the garden with the exception of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree would bring certain death if eaten. So let's look at, at chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. 
you won't surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So crafty little serpent snuggles up to Eve, uh, begins questioning God's instructions. He distorts God's command. Did God really say? He focuses on the prohibition. Instead of the, the, grace, the gracious gift of all of these things, he picks out the one thing that God said, do not eat. And, and rather than you know, Eve cutting him off, she gets hooked, right? So she's focusing on what she cannot have. And then she distorts it further, almost kind of getting caught up in the emotion of it. Oh, and he also said, don't touch it. God never says that. And then what she does is she minimizes the threat. You will, not, you will certainly die is what God said. And she says, well, you'll die. So she, she minimizes the threat. It's not as difficult or dangerous. Eh, it's not that bad. So the serpent, you know, in kind, just finishes her off, totally contradicts God. This is not, he's not even being crafty anymore. He's just being flat out um, disobedient. And <clears throat> he offers up this version of a more delightful humanity. But when we sin, we feel like we're becoming more human, but really we're being dehumanized. And, and that's a, a crucial component. We talked about addictions last night. Addictions dehumanize. That's the reason you can't be addicted to Jesus, because he always makes us more fully who we are. But addictions don't. They dehumanize. Sin dehumanizes. If we move forward, we have Eve's assessment of the fruit. This is really interesting. Instead of listening to God's word, his clear and non-burdensome command, she trusts in three things, her pragmatism is good for food. That well, looks nice. Her aesthetics, it's pleasing to the eye. And her sensual desires, it's her, her desire for gaining wisdom. Her desire for gaining, this wisdom is power. It's the ability uh, and the skill to bring in life and prevent death. She uses the word good here, but it's changed. And so no longer is good what's defined by God. Good is what's defined as what's best for me. Adam, for his part, sees all this take place. We know he's right there, right? So all the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. He says nothing, shows no leadership, does not protect his wife, does not protect the garden, and participates in the sin himself. The consequences were horrific. Marital bliss of being naked and unashamed is now reversed. So what they do is they sow fig leaves on themselves uh, because they can't stand to be seen naked by each other. But then they hide because they can't stand to be seen by God at all. They're afraid of him. For the first time, they're afraid of God. Then in this next interaction with Adam, God speaks to a specific, it, it speaks to a specific design of head and helper in the relationship. When he comes into the garden looking, he calls only to Adam in 3.9, and he questions him first. Adam failed in his leadership. When he speaks to Adam in 3.17, when the judgment portion comes, the first sin he calls Adam out on is for listening to and obeying his wife. He did not exercise the one flesh union with Eve and allowed sin to come into the world. What we have next is very familiar to us, it's the blame game. Adam blames Eve and hilariously blames God for giving him Eve. Eve blame shifts to the serpent. 
neither of them are taking responsibility for their sin. And this is the beginning of the gospel of me. This is the toxic gospel of me seen the first time in Scripture. It's me. It's all about me. I didn't do anything. Somebody else did something. I'm awesome, right? The gospel of me. And then God begins pronouncing judgment. He curses the serpent, then he judges Eve, and then he judges Adam in reverse of how the sin took place. Now, when he curses the serpent, and this is where something amazing happens, you've probably heard of the Proto-Evangelium. It means the first gospel. In 3.14, it says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between hers, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. We see the gospel here. Even in sin, God is already thinking redemption. This is the law. The the Lord's way of working is redeeming. In every marriage, we talked last night, what do we do for a difficult marriage? God can redeem anything. If he can redeem this, he can redeem anybody's marriage. God is a redeemer. Satan's offspring is going to battle with God, and God's going to win. And where this marriage failed... There's another marriage that is going to succeed. It's the marriage of Christ and his bride for eternity. Let's turn our our attention to the judgment of Eve. God says two things to her. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you you will give birth to children. And he says your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. This has been for so many, for so many men, falsely, Uh, interpreted and used. It's been used to subjugate women. See, here it says that God is telling you to desire me and I get to rule over you. Well, what we have here is actually the two verbs, Hebrew verbs of rule and desire, are only used one other time together in all of the Old Testament. The second time they're used is when God is talking to Cain. And he says this to Cain, if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. These are the only two instances. Now, the Cain passage is actually pretty clear for most scholars. And every scholar that I've read talks about it like this. We interpret the 316, the curse to Eve, or the judgment on Eve, in light of what's being said to Cain. And scholar D.A. Carson notes this. A better translation of 316 would be, Your desire will be to manipulate your husband. He will brutalize you. What this means is, this is not carte blanche for men to tell women what to do and to be, you know, domineering and controlling. And they have to just grovel at their feet. What it's saying is, now that relationship is broken, the desire is for control. And the control leads to violence. And, and the violence doesn't necessarily have to be physical violence. It can be emotional violence. It can be stonewalling, not talking to somebody, passive aggressiveness, yelling. I mean, all sorts of things are violent in relationship. And the violence is designed to gain control. So whereas both Adam and Eve failed in their responsibilities, Adam failed to be the, the leader and Eve failed to be the helper, they switched and sinfully got this. Blame shifting we've seen. We've seen control. We've seen violence. 
How many of you have experienced these things in the past month? Maybe in the past week, maybe this morning. It's so easy to do. Well, I didn't, I didn't do that because it, you know, it was the kid. The kid, he, he was screaming, and, and so like, I just couldn't kind of get together. Or I was, you know, I, I was late because I was, you know, the blame shifting abounds, right? This desire for control is something that is so compelling because now it's in us. Our desire is to control. And we have to fight it. We see it all the time. Uh, ask all of our, our counselors. Ask your friends. Ask yourselves. You see it in your friends. You see it in your spouses. You see it in yourself. This is the full-blown toxic gospel of me. All I want to do is get control. I think I could probably sum up the vast majority of when I see couples, when they first come in, when things are really hard, most people would say, if my spouse would just do what I told them, things would be amazing. We'd have an awesome marriage. I'm awesome. I know exactly what we need, right? They want their spouse to do exactly what they say, and what they're trying to do is to domesticate their spouse so they look just like them rather than like the Lord. This is... <laughs> This is our burden that we bear as a result of sin. Now, jumping back into the text, we see Adam, his first sin and judgment is passivity and leadership. Um, secondly, eating from the fruit brings all mankind toil and work and gets the ground cursed. This is why you plant tomatoes and they don't grow or, you know, whatever. Um, and it'll be this way until the new heavens and the new earth. Romans 18.21 says that the creation is waiting in eager expectation to be liberated from the decay once we are in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it's talking about. God subjected this earth to, to, to this position because of Adam's sin. Now, the thing that's interesting coming up is Adam, he's actually listening. If we look at this closely, he's listening to the curse the serpent um, <clears throat> to the serpent. And he believes that God will make Eve's offspring crush Satan. He sees these two seeds, one of Satan and one of the Lord. And so, you know, we've been calling her Eve or the woman, but this is the first time he actually names Eve, names her Eve, and he names her the mother of the living. He's believing the Lord in his gospel that he's preaching. He shows faith there is mercy yet still, even in this relationship. And then God mercifully sacrifices an animal to cover Adam and Eve's shame. Reflecting on this, one scholar writes, God does, in 321, for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They cannot deal with their shame, but God can, God will, and God does. See, even after the fall, God has a purpose in marriage. And it'll be part of his plan to make all things new in Christ, to take the seed of the woman and provide hope for all of us in the new future. He's a redeemer. So now they've been punted out of the garden, no longer able to eat from the tree of life, no longer walking with God in the cool of the day. Their intimacy has turned into conflict and their fruitfulness has turned into division. You can jump to that next uh, slide there just to, to show. We're going to talk more about the fall, but... If you see the difference, walking with God, separated from God. Once coming together was intimacy, and now it's conflict. And from the connection and intimacy, they go out in multiplication. 
when they come together in conflict, they go out in division. And so this is what we're working against in, in our marriages and in our lives, is to be able to come together with our spouse towards intimacy. And God can provide that for us because he is gracious to us. So we're going to kind of blitzkrieg through. You know, we've, we've stayed in Genesis for a while. We're going to blitzkrieg through a bunch of passages in the Old Testament um, with two, two components here. The kindness of the Lord to allow intimacy in marriage to continue, as well as God continuing to pursue his undeserving bride. They're kind of two parallel themes that run alongside each other. Deuteronomy 24.5. You don't have to look these up. They're going pretty fast. Deuteronomy 24.5, God's allowing a soldier to live with his wife for a year um, after being married so he doesn't have to engage in paddle or public service or duty so that he can give joy to his wife. God still values marriage. It's more important than service. It is a wonderful gift uh, to be able to do this. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. We'll read that one. It says this. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public square, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. Sex is meant to be between one man and one woman. And God continues to allow it. Even in this sinful, broken world, there's still a taste of Eden that's available to us today. Proverbs 31 celebrates a woman. This is the sort of idealized woman, right? If you've read that. Paints a picture of a woman who's completely trustworthy, hardworking, a wonderful mother, strong. An idealized woman, a Christian, godly woman, is not a doormat. Help me to strong, capable, and confident. And we see that in God's word. Song of Songs, you know where I'm going with that. Jonathan Edwards says, this of all the poetry Solomon wrote, this is the Song of Songs, his greatest song. And this is a book about unabashed sexual and relational intimacy. Passionate love is on display here. Still, through scripture, as we walk through the law and the, the, the writings, the wisdom literature, we see God, you know, lifting up marriage as something amazing. But at the same time, God continues to view himself as the husband to his church. Jeremiah 3.14, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. For I am your husband, I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. And again, Ezekiel 16.32 and 59-60, through 60, You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet, I will remember the covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. And in Hosea, he's, he's called to marry a prostitute to give an example of what it is for God to be with his church. He views the church as a prostitute. They have prostituted themselves to all these other nations and given them over, and yet God doesn't stop. He continues to pursue his bride. Looking at marriage in the Gospels, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. We'll go there. 
And in this, in this passage, he's doing something. He's been asked by the Pharisees about divorce. I didn't put my little sticker here, so I'm having to actually look it up. And Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is reaffirming Genesis 1-2, male and female. The humans were created, male and female. He's reaffirming Genesis 2-24, the truth of a one-flesh union. But he's also clarifying that the one who joins them together is God. It's not just two people making the decision and all of a sudden, boom, it's done. God joins them together. God honors marriage. And only God's design for marriage will be honored by God. So therefore, only God's design is actually marriage. Again, Ray Ortland says this, if you're married, even if your marriage in some way disappoints you, still, God was the one who joined you together. Your imperfect marriage in the world of today is sacred in the sight of God, as was the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is a grace from above. Your marriage is a miracle. Your marriage came to you with a touch of God upon it, and it remains dear to him. Your marriage has the potential, by his grace, to bring redemption into the broken world we all live in now. Your imperfect marriage is therefore worth celebrating. Jesus thought so. So here we, we, we've ended with sort of the fall, right? Separated from God, conflict, division, but we get a vision of, of what's coming. We get a vision of, of redemption. Christ's death and resurrection accomplished that for us. So go, let's go to Ephesians 5, 21 through 23. You're familiar with that. You guys have been in that for like seven months, I think, right? We'll go ahead and read it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Think about Revelation here. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, again, Genesis 2.24, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I'm not going to go through all this, but I want to make a few uh, kind of notes here. Submit yourselves to one another. I think your, the Bible that y'all use translates it out as for fear of Christ. Not for reverence, but for fear of Christ. Think back to Genesis when Adam hid. I hid from you, Lord, because I was afraid. What turns reverence into fear? Or what turns fear into reverence? It's relationship. Relationship with the Lord changes our posture before the Lord. And we're no longer afraid of him, but we revere him in awe. We're in awe of him because perfect love casts out fear. And when we see the perfect love of Christ, we don't have to be afraid. 
It's also difficult not to notice. It's also not difficult to notice that male and female roles are talked about in this passage. But what's happening is that Paul keeps switching back and forth talking about Christ and husbands and wives. Plus, with the controlling verse, 521, seems to indicate that the focus on how marriage plays out in the home is not primarily about gender roles. It's more about Jesus' roles. How Jesus both sets an example for us in how to live and empowers us to do so. Now, in this passage, let's also think back to the judgment on Eve. Your desire will be to manipulate your husband and he will brutalize you. Think about that verse in light of these. In light of what Paul's saying a godly head helper marriage looks like, the opposite of manipulation is submission. The opposite of using your body to harm somebody is to lay it down in sacrifice. A gospel marriage flips the cursed marriage on its head and reestablishes the holy design for marriage where the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And we don't have to fight for control because God is in control. He's asking us to submit to him ultimately, and he will help us to do that. Another passage, another point I want to make here with this is, think about Genesis 1.26. They're given this sort of rulership. And then think about 3.16, which we took, just talked about, your desire to manipulate and brutalize. And if you look here in verses 21 through 23, in Genesis 1.26, Adam and Eve both given the rule. 3.16, the consequence of sin, uh, brings out the evil desire for domineering and control, often leading to violence. And though Ephesians also calls for leadership, it calls for leadership without domineering. What are we to make of this? Well, neither the wife who is submitting to her husband nor the husband who is lovingly leading his wife are called to manage the other spouse's you know, calls from the Lord. We don't have Paul saying, Husbands, go ahead and make sure your wives submit to you. Be sure to remind them on a daily basis to be submissive to you. We also don't have the call for wives for you to constantly tell your husband to lead better. There are too many men who are submission-starved. They think they need more submission, right? And they think they need to manage their spouse. And there are too many women who I would say are leady-needy. Um, they want somebody to lead, and they're kind of constantly trying to get their husband to do it. And the crazy thing is, uh, what they're actually saying is, well, if God's word isn't convicting them, then I guess I'll do what God can't. I can get them to do it. If your husband or wife loves the Lord and his word and his spirit don't convict them, why on earth would we think that we can? We can't. God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it will penetrate into us and change us if we give ourselves over to him. Rather, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ and work towards a relationship with the Lord. Let him do the work in your spouse because otherwise... It just goes back to that desire for control. Again, if we think we can control our spouse and domesticate them so they look just like us, we are de-godding God and taking the place again and establishing what we think is good. And that didn't go so well the first time, so uh, we, it's not good to do it again. So Pastor Sunday did a, did a wonderful job articulating the roles of husband and wife. Uh, I, I really appreciated his focus on a husband can cherish his wife and help present her to Christ. And to piggyback off that, I want to highlight that this call is actually part of what it means to be a Christian. We're called into community to help sharpen, shape in one another. Phyllis kind of had mentioned yesterday 
as many of you know, marriage and children are quite transformative. Uh, they, help, they help expose our sin like you didn't even know you had. Uh, so when couples come in and are lamenting the behavior of their spouse, when you are lamenting the behavior of your spouse, uh, kindly remind yourselves of this truth. God must really love you because in his kindness, he gave somebody to you who brings out your sinful responses in your heart. This insufferable person is merely exposing the stuff that you have because if he were to do it or she were to do it to Christ, he would respond kindly and gently and caringly. We want to be more like Christ. What does the purification of Christ's bride look like? One of the ways it presents is through our relationship to our spouses. And this is why this truth is so important. Good marriages have problems. If your marriage, I had a friend of mine, not a friend anymore, I don't talk to him anymore. He had gotten married after college. And I saw him at a wedding. I saw him at a friend's wedding. And I said, hey, you know, Jimmy, how are things going? You know, I was kind of chatting across the table. And he's like, oh, things are great. I was like, how's marriage? He's like, oh, it's wonderful. I was like, how are the fights? He's like, oh, we haven't fought. I thought he was joking. I was like, oh, no, can we? but seriously, like, how are the fights? He's like, no, we've never, we've never fought. And I thought to myself, well, this is going to be a terrible marriage. They're not married anymore. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, good marriages have problems, and they're good because we're becoming more like Christ. We have problems. My sin is interacting with my wife's sin, and then we're going away. And if we're going to the Lord, what we're going to see is God will transform us, expose to us our sin. Instead of the toxic gospel of me, it will be, I am the sinner. Dear sirs, I am. You are the biggest problem in your marriage. Your spouse isn't. You are the biggest problem in your marriage. And that's the truth. If you take that home and think of the things that are happening in your marriage and how you can make that change, your marriage will, will move towards uh, God's glory. We get to see how God has transformed us, how he continues to transform us in our marriages because of our spouse and hopefully continue to move towards Christ kind of in the thick of it all. In the end, it's about Christ and the church. This passage is about Christ and the church, the flip-flop here, the imagery, as you've recently heard. It's not about the marriage in the present only. There's something more being presented here, something greater, something grander. The way a husband and wife relate to each other preaches a glorious truth that God has long awaited to share with the world. Only in Christ is the mystery of marriage revealed. When you read this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's not a mystery anymore. It's not a mystery of what marriage means and what it is because it's clarified in Christ. When Paul uses the word mystery, he's not talking about a super secret knowledge. He's talking about something that has been made known in Christ. Marriage is no longer a mystery. It's a grander meaning. We're the church, his bride, he's our bridegroom. And when we fulfill our roles in the biblical head-helper relationship, we show the world what Christ's submission and sacrifice looks like. We do not demand our own way. And we, unlike Satan, do not consider equality with God something to be grasped. We don't need control. We can entrust ourselves to the Lord and look forward to the glorious restoration of all things. The next slide, again, has redemption. So creation, fall, redemption. We're brought back by God. He has reconciled us in Christ. And what we have is union 
Because we're united with Christ, we can be united with each other in a new kind of an intimacy, a Christian intimacy. And this all moves forward to Revelation. Yeah. Revelation 16, 6 through 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then an angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the, older, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen to that. These verses picture a new heaven and a new earth. Just like in Eden, there was a perfect heaven and earth, and then earth was destroyed. They show how Babylon, right before you know, chapter, or verse, verse 6 in 19, 19 2, who had corrupted the earth, who was judged and defeated, the saints are rejoicing in the marriage supper of the Lamb. His brightest church is wearing fine linen, bright and clean, which he secured for her, no longer blemished or wrinkled. Christ has purified his bride, as we saw in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. It's going to happen. Christ is going to purify his bride. And he has given us this great joy in imaging this in our marriage to exemplify Christ in the church. Husbands, you can sacrificially love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, you can humbly submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And when we live according to his word... We can experience freedom, intimacy, and joy in our marriage. And we can do all of this as we eagerly await perfection in the new heaven and the new earth. So restoration. Go to the next slide here. Restored to God forever. Renewal. Perfection. From Eden to Eden. Marriages do three things. They exemplify Christ in the church. They purify us. We saw that in Ephesians 5. And they satisfy us. We saw that in Proverbs, Song of Songs. God has given us marriage, a taste of Eden now, a foretaste of what is to come. There is satisfaction. And I think a lot of people think that there might not be, that in Christian marriage it's kind of, kind of boring. Um, but it's not. There's satisfaction, there's intimacy, there's, there's purity that happens as a result of this. And we get to proclaim the gospel with our lives. I'm going to take you to, back to the garden. 
the Garden of Eden, where we started, where we saw Adam and Eve fail. They refused to listen to the Lord. They abdicated their responsibility. They did not submit to him. They did not follow their God-designed way of living. And we go from that Eden and that garden to the Eden in the future, the holy Eden. And I want to take you to somewhere else. I want to take you to another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ sat before the Lord, sweating blood, not knowing what was going to happen totally, but fully committing. He said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted himself. Christ submitted himself to the Lord. And then he laid down his life in a sacrifice, and he won for himself a bride, purified bride, and brought her back to him without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, Christ secured for us this heavenly Eden. And hopefully our marriages can be a foretaste for the world to see and for us to experience of what Christ has done for us, what he can do, has done, and will continue to do. Let's pray. God, you have been so good to us. You have been so faithful to us. Without your goodness, without your sacrifice, without your submission to the will of of God, one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid himself down, came and took on the form of a servant, the God-man. Lord, I pray that we would be able to comprehend and apprehend this truth and live from this truth Pray that we would be able to experience the joys of purity in marriage, that we wouldn't blame shift our sin to our spouse, but would take ownership of it because we know that in a, a true godly marriage, there is hope and there is freedom to be who we have been called to be, and that our identity, Lord, is in you out of reverence for you, Lord, not fear, but reverence for you. We can honor you. And I pray that we would love our spouse as you have called us to. That we wouldn't believe in the toxic gospel of me. That we wouldn't consider ourselves better than, better than others, but would lift up our spouse. Pray for uh, godly husbands to lead, to cherish, to seek out their wives, and love them and lay their lives down for them. Pray for wives to joyfully submit as you submitted your life And Lord, that we would have a a glorious heralding of the gospel in our marriages. Uh, Lord, may that start uh, even now, even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.